We are back with another episode of the Defend and Confirm podcast. I am your assistant to the host, Sean DeMars. I'm Russell Berger. And you're the host host. I guess that makes me the host. Yeah, that's right. I don't know how that works, but... Yeah, I am the Ryan to your Michael Scott. I think this is the third episode we've recorded in 2020 through 21. Let's just get that out of the way. (laughs) Uh, A lot of our most faithful fans have been contacting us and saying, where have you guys been? Well, friends, listen, at the end of the day, I'm a full-time pastor. Russell, you've got a crazy life. You have a wife who's very ill that takes requires a lot of time. And so, uh, yeah, we wish we could be the guys who faithfully knock out an episode every week, but we're struggling with that. So thanks for bearing with us. In the Lord's providence. Yeah. We are not talking about everything that happens every week. That's right. There may be a good reason for that. Yeah. I I think usually whenever there's a delay, we end up being thankful that there was and our stuff ends up being better for it. That's true. Yeah. Now, in our last episode, we began to critique critical race theory. We've already talked about what it is and where it came from. And in our last episode, we spent like an hour and change critiquing what we think is the heart of critical race theory. Uh, And we think that is the relationship between discrimination and disparities. Critical race theory says, no matter what, whenever you see any kind of racial disparity, it has to be because there has been some kind of racial discrimination, right? The question isn't, has racism taken place? It has. The question is, how has racism manifested itself in this situation? Yeah, the evidence of racism is the disparity itself. That's right. So listen, if if you're tuning in for part two and you haven't watched part one, go back, watch that. Russell, what did we talk about in that episode? Well, we, we kind of covered this ground. Yeah. We gave some basic logical tools for thinking through things like cause and effect. Yeah. And then we, we jumped into some of the main areas that really carry the water for the critical race theory camp in terms of proving this, okay. this claim that all disparities are evidence of discrimination. Yeah. And so we jumped right into things like incarceration rates, mm-hmm. which there's, there's tremendous disparity between black and white Americans in terms of proportionality in prison. Yeah. Uh, we talked about drug crimes, mm-hmm. violent crimes. And in walking through some of that data, we showed that there are far better explanations for those disparities than merely discrimination and racism. That's right. And we gave some of those explanations. They may not be the only explanations. In fact, I'm sure they're not. Yeah. But they're powerful explanations and better explanations than discrimination. We think so. Uh, One more little note before we get started. Uh, So some of the feedback we got from last episode one point of feedback was that we were a little too jocular, which I thought was surprising because it may have been the most serious episode we've ever done. Uh, I would just encourage you guys to listen to the content of our arguments and not try to interpret uh, yeah, our attempts our, at humor. Yeah, yes. Uh, we think this is a very serious yeah. subject matter, but also we think that some of this stuff deserves to be mocked with uh, an appropriate amount of godly sarcasm. Yeah, there's two sides to that. Some of this stuff that comes out of critical theory is just so foolish that you kind of have to mock it. You have to go prophetic on it. You really do. Yeah. The other side of this is that that's our personality. Yeah. Neither one of us is a very serious person and we like our bad jokes. Yeah. So if you found that to be the case in our last episode, I can almost guarantee it's the first episode of ours you've ever listened to. Yeah. Or you would know how chock full of bad off color humor. Yeah. You would be getting out of a normal episode from us. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, we're going to get back to, Serious, oh, serious, charitable, <laughs> yes, calming mode. Yes. Uh, actually, one more thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, some people have responded to our last episode by 
uh, slandering us. Yeah, that's uh, true. Calling us white supremacists, trying to get us deplatformed. And you know what? Maybe it'll work. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but we know, as we said at the beginning of this series, uh, that our conscience is clear before God. You know, we stand in direct opposition, full-throated, wholehearted opposition to racism, to white supremacy. We think what we're doing is a million miles away from that. We're, and we actually think that critical race theory is uh, ironically one of the things that will increase white supremacy in this country. Uh, so yeah, anyways, anything you want to say about that? Yeah, I, I just want to point out that uh, we would say that white supremacy and critical race theory are, are siblings. Yeah, that's right. They have such a under as as different as they appear on the surface. Yeah. When you start to unpack their assumptions and the way they view people and mm-hmm. the way they view evil and good, they are so similar in their basic errors. Yeah. Uh, that we we want to be seen as as champions against both of them. Yeah, we don't like racism, no. regardless of what side it comes from. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So let's dig right in. Yeah, let's do it. So let's start off with police shootings. Mm. Um. You know, there's a sense in which we probably could have started this entire series with police shootings because uh, police shootings of uh, black men seem to be the primary driving factor behind this increase in discussions about race and equity in America. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, turn on the news. It's, yeah. it's certainly the driving factor behind things like the Black Lives Matter movement and the riots and protests that we've seen in the streets. Yeah. So, I mean, we could have started here, but but we didn't, but we're here now. So uh, let's get into it. Yeah. So this is uh, a, a disparity, a perceived disparity. Unlike the other disparities we've talked about, like the incarceration rates, Sure. Uh, the data, if you look closely at the number of men, women killed by police in yeah. our country and their skin color, this is actually just a perceived disparity. It's not a real disparity in the sense of the others. So the disparity that someone who disagrees with us, maybe a CRT advocate, that they're saying that this disparity is that unarmed black men uh, are killed by police officers at a, what, exponentially higher rate than other races in our country? That's right. I've, I've heard it described as open season on young black men. Rhetorically, that's very powerful. It is. So let's just start with this paper that was published by The Journal of the National Medical Association, writing about police shootings. Medical. Here we go. The problem of police killings of unarmed black victims should not be viewed merely as a problem of flawed action on the part of individual police officers, but more as a consequence of the broader problem of structural racism. Unjustified homicide by police should be added to the long list of public health consequences of societal racism. Yeah, so... There's an unspoken assumption behind this, and that assumption is, and it's not completely unreasonable, but the assumption is that police killings should match, precisely match America's demographic makeup. So if you have 50% white, 25% black, 10% Asian, 10% whatever, that you should expect to see that same breakdown in how many people are killed by police. That's the that right. same racial breakdown. That, that's the assumption. Okay. Now, of course, you could you could always say, well, of course, we should see no one getting killed unjustly by the police. If even one, right? That's how the line goes, right? right? Uh, and yet that's not what we see. We yeah. see a, a breakdown that's, that's different than what we see in the demographics of our population. Okay, well, tell us about it. Well, so there's, there's two assumptions here that we need to deal with. And we've kind of already dealt with this in the past episode. Number one is that black Americans commit a disproportionate amount of violent crime. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not saying that black people are 
all committing crimes. No. That's not at all what we're saying. No. But it is a statistical fact that if you look at all the people committing violent crimes, far more of them are black than should be based merely on the demographic makeup of our country. Now, why are you bringing that up? Well, I'm bringing that up because let's think about what a police shooting is. Mm -hmm. It's a violent encounter with law enforcement that ends very badly. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, and that's, I'm just making that up off sure. the top of my head. Yeah. Those police shootings are not just out of the clear blue sky. Yeah. It's not that a police officer just walks up to a law-abiding citizen and, and shoots him in the back. Sure. There was some sort of violent struggle or altercation or perceived threat yeah. uh, that is usually from dealing with a violent suspect or a violent offender. Yeah, this goes also into the unrecognized bias, uh, which is something that people in the CRT world love to talk about. But you know, there is such a thing as a reasonable bias. And if you're a police officer who works in a particularly dangerous neighborhood and who sees criminals who always tend to dress the same, talk the same, drive walk the same, the same, kind same of drive the same cars the same way, uh, then those biases that they have are actually built-in mechanisms for their safety. Yeah. Now you brought up a, a second issue already, and that is that the areas that are most densely populated with black Americans also tend to be the areas with the highest amounts of violent crime. Okay. So again, something we talked about in our last episode, police resources, policing resources are going to go to those areas where the most crime is happening. Right. And so you're going to have greater chance of interacting with mm -hmm. guys with badges and guns. Uh, and so whether these are justified killings or not, just the chance of that happening. The statistical probability. If you live in a black area of town, the chance statistically of you engaging with police officers carrying firearms is higher because they're patrolling that area for a reason. So if you have a, a higher probability of encountering a police officer, you also have a higher probability of having a violent encounter. So let's look at a, a bit of data here. In 2019, police officers fatally shot 1,004 people. That's all people, not to any particular race. That's a total number. Okay. Most of them were armed or otherwise dangerous. Okay. African-Americans were about a quarter of those killed by cops last year. It was 235. Okay. A ratio that has remained stable since about 2015. And that share of black victims is less than what the black crime rate would predict. So like we've already said, there tends to be more violent crime among black Americans. Sure. And so if you extrapolate that out to police interactions and what you should expect shooting, police-related shootings to look yeah. like, uh, there's actually less officer-involved shootings of black suspects than there would be based on that data. Yeah. Um, and so all that aside, since police shootings are a function of how often officers encounter violent suspects, we have to remember that that density of police force yeah. on a city that has higher crime rates, it, it just has to be taken into account when you talk about these issues. Gotcha. So any broad claims that we make or, or anyone makes about racism being the cause behind these shootings mm -hmm. and behind the perceived disparity there, it needs to take into account the question of justified shootings and unjustified shootings. That's, okay. that's an important distinction. Because we tend to talk about armed versus unarmed suspects. Right. Okay, so what's the difference? So an unarmed suspect... Doesn't have any... Wait, <laughs> okay, no, they don't have a weapon. See, there you go with the jokes There we again. go with the this jokes. This is a serious subject. Serious subject. Uh, an unarmed suspect, if you, if you just read that word without context it tends to be that people who have no experience in law enforcement or right. military are going to think, oh, a harmless suspect. No. That is not the case. Anytime there's an encounter with a police officer carrying a gun, there is an armed encounter. Yeah. Unarmed suspects 
can be incredibly dangerous. They just, can take the cop's gun. Just put yourself in yeah. the shoes of a 5'4", 120-pound female police officer. Mm-hmm. And now imagine trying to restrain and control a 240-pound male who is intoxicated. Right. I mean, right there, you have an unarmed suspect who could easily take the life of that police officer by just exercising a little bit of his physical dominance over her. Sure. Uh, so just because someone is unarmed does not mean they are not dangerous. It doesn't mean that the shooting was unjustified. Right. So we want to look at unjustified, which means regardless of whether they had weapons or not, did, after reviewing the facts of a particular case, yeah. uh, does common sense and reason and, uh, and, and just the law... Yeah conclude that those police officers acted in good faith with with clear consciences they did what they needed to yeah. do or were they shooting when they shouldn't have been right were they shooting someone who really didn't present a threat that's yeah. the question we want to know because if it if it happens that you have let's let's imagine for a second that all 1004 of these shootings in 2019 were justified okay well the disparity shows that a slightly higher percentage of them were black than mm-hmm. should be based on demographics so we're right back to our first point, which is that basically that's a reflection of how there's higher crime rates within black communities. Sure. But if it turns out that all 235 of those black Americans killed were killed in unjustified shootings, well, now you have a really compelling argument that there's something yeah. discriminatory or racist yeah. in the guys pulling the trigger. Yeah. So before moving on from yeah, that, can we just make an appeal to our Christian brothers and sisters? Uh, guys, it, please do not offer up commentary on whether or not a, a, a killing was justified after watching a five second grainy video on whatever internet <laughs> site you may be looking at. I mean, there are standard operating procedures for use of force that law enforcement have and that they employ for good reason. Yeah. And that's not to say that we can't ever look at something and render a good verdict on it, but I, we just want to say, don't be so quick to think that you understand the use of force dynamics in a particular situation and then run off to the internet to add fuel to the fire. Yeah, that's that's especially true for pastors who yes. may find that they can really use a very small amount of data that they have no expertise in interpreting, yeah. like a video, sure. to build a platform and to get a lot of people riled up behind them. Uh, when in reality, there's so much legal technicality and so many uh, very difficult judgments made in situations yeah. like that that it's always wiser to sit back and let due process do yeah. what it's supposed to do. And if you ever have any questions about that, uh, I, I reached out to the chief of police in our city and uh, asked him if he could come talk to our church about it uh, during when things were really crazy, and he was happy to. Most police officers, if you say, hey, can you explain to me, can you help me understand this use of force stuff? They'd be happy to, because you know what? They do want you to be informed. They want you to see what they see so that th- you, you won't point the finger at them when, they, you know, when they're just doing their job. There's a, we're getting way off subject, yeah, but there's a great video out there of a journalist yeah. who was heavily critical of a police-involved shooting. And so the police officers at this department invited her to come, take some training, and then basically act as a police officer through some scenarios. Yeah. Uh, and she drew her pretend gun and fired blank rounds at an unarmed suspect within 10 seconds yeah. of her first encounter. So let's get back to our question of uh, racism in police shootings. Yes. So we got 100, uh, 1,004 people killed in 2019 from police-involved shootings. 235 of them were black. We want to know about the unjustified and justified division there. Turns out it's really hard to find that data. Yeah, it's hard. Nobody's really keeping track of which officers were vindicated and which shootings. So let's just, for the sake of argument, let's just say, let's assume that every unarmed person was unjustifiably killed. 
Okay. It's a ridiculous assumption. It's gaining a lot. Yeah, giving a lot of ground So away. we're just going to give that up. Let's okay. just look at the data and assume that everyone who is unarmed was killed without justification. Before we give the number of uh, unarmed black people who were shot by police officers in 2019, there's a video of a guy going around and asking random people how many people they thought were killed last year uh, as unarmed black men by police officers. And the numbers were something like 300, 5,000. One guy said something like 10% of the population. Again, this is part of the narrative that it's open season These on black These are genocide men. levels of numbers. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so keep that in mind, yes. right? The public thinks, I mean, 2%, 3%, 5% of the population being gunned down by police officers. The actual number, Russell, was? In 2019, nine unarmed black people were shot dead by cops. Yeah. 19 unarmed white people shared the same fate. But if you adjust for population size. Yeah, it's still disproportionate. Okay. As we've talked about. So that means roughly twice as many uh, white people were killed. Okay. Uh, but based on the number of, of black Americans in our population, it's still disproportionate. We've already talked about why that is in terms of police interaction right, in right. crime areas. However, it's, not, it's not as disproportionate as you might believe, though. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, there's still justif justifiable reasons to shoot an unarmed suspect. Right. And so it's really hard for us to draw any firm conclusions from this. But as we pointed out at length... Uh, you know, for, for multiple reasons of both for the higher rates of violent crime among uh, black Americans and the places they tend to live, which tend to have higher crime rates and therefore more police interaction. This is exactly what we would expect to see right. in an unbiased, generally racially discriminatory free police right. system. Yeah. Uh, and now there have been studies done on this exact question. Uh, so there's one from Harvard economist uh, Roland Fryer. But he's white, though. He's maybe white on the inside. OK. Yeah, he's definitely black. So he's black, but he's eternalized the oppression of his oppressors. Here we go getting sarcastic. Again. Okay, sorry. No, but in all seriousness, yeah. this is this is an economist. He's a black man at Harvard, which is significant in itself. Yep. And then he says this. He says uh, from a two thousand a study done of two thousand sixteen data that the police are more likely to shoot white suspects than black suspects if there is any racial bias in shootings at all. He later amended the study to go back and say there's no racial bias either way. Sure. Uh, but that's a small concession. Uh, this completely flies in the face of the common uh, mantra that we hear that it is open season on black males and that police are, are just killing yeah. black teenagers and black men left and right. The same study did point out that police officers are a little more likely to go hands-on with African-American suspects than they were would be with white suspects. But again, and I know our listeners are probably tired of hearing us repeat ourselves, but it makes sense that a police officer would be more likely to go hands-on in a in an environment where there's more violent crime. That's right. Okay. Uh, another study found that among a sample of 2,699 fatal police killings, this is between uh, 2013 and 2015, okay. the odds of a black suspect being killed by a black officer were okay. consistently greater than the odds of a black suspect being killed by a white officer. Mm. So there again, uh, th this is just demonstrating the complexity of understanding social phenomena like this and trying to explain it with very simple cookie cutter answers like white supremacy. Yeah. Because you, all this data contradicts that. You, you can't call it white supremacy when black pe police officers are more likely to kill black suspects. Well, you can. 
Oh, sure, you can. It just takes a whole lot of logical, incoherent leaps yeah. to get there. Yeah. Uh, and that really just comes down to how emotionally committed are you to an idea? How unwilling are you to take in new information and change your ideas uh, when it contradicts the narrative that you happen to like? Before moving on, Russell, are we apologists for the police? Uh, not at all. In fact, if this was a different type of podcast, I would have a lot of very critical things to say about our entire legal system. Yeah, that's right. So we're not trying to defend all police officers everywhere. Russell, do you have like a Blue Lives Matter sticker on your car somewhere? I do not. No. Uh, we do love and support uh, all of our good police officers. We pray for them. We we ask God to give them wisdom to do the very difficult job that they've been called to. And we couldn't even imagine trying to do what they do, especially in this climate. Nevertheless, we uh, we are not defenders of all police everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Socioeconomic disparities. Yeah, big gear shift here. Yeah. So we're leaving criminal justice. Yeah. We're moving into one of the other areas where we tend to hear a lot of uh, evidence that there is systemic racism, and this is this is without question, uh, it is the disparities yeah. in terms of wealth gap and socioeconomic status. That's that the main thing you'll hear, wealth gap. Wealth gap, that yeah. are the evidence of that racism. So here's an example. According to the Center for American Progress, uh, as of 2016, the median wealth for non-retired black households above age 25, so between 25 and maybe 65, okay, was $13,460 compared with $142,000 for whites. That's, that is a pretty big wealth gap. That's an enormous gap. Now, the argument from CRT and those who uh, may be influenced by it unwittingly is that there's no way that this is not caused by systemic or structural racism. Right. Okay. Yeah, one, uh, one author puts it this way. Centuries of racism and discrimination mean that this divide is a great deal wider for black households that are denied the access to the opportunities and resources available to white households. Uh, to take this wealth gap beyond current uh, issues of discrimination and rooting it all the way back in slavery, uh, ta Coates says this in The Atlantic. Nearly one-fourth of all white Southerners owned slaves, and upon their backs, the economic basis of America and much of the Atlantic world was erected. The wealth gap, therefore, puts a number on something we feel but cannot say, that American prosperity was ill-gotten. So the collective black conscience of America feels like oppression is the thing that's holding us down, but we, how can we articulate that? Well, all you have to do is look at the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. 11,000 yeah, versus 114,000. And that's the timeline of this narrative, which is that it begins with slavery. Yeah. America's prosperity is on the, on the backs of slaves. Yeah. And then as slavery is done away with and Jim Crow is, uh, you know, legal segregation is outlawed. Now that same oppression is just as real, but it's underground. It's, it's baked into systems where you can't see it. Right. Which is, makes it awfully hard to attack. Uh, Russell, are you saying that slavery has no impact on the black economic experience in America today? Uh, that would be a foolish thing to say. Okay. Yeah. It's just sort of a a self-evident truth that past events (laughs) have domino like consequences on future states. Yeah. Uh, So of course I, I talk about it like a rock being cast into a pond, right? Uh, the ripples may get smaller the further out you go, but the ripples are still there. That's right. Okay. So yeah, of course, uh, slavery 
in America's past, chattel slavery and Jim Crow laws, yeah. which legally barred black Americans from having the opportunities to create wealth, start businesses, vote, all, the, all these sorts of things. Of course, that had an impact on their economic progress sure. and success. Yeah. The question is, is that why we still see wealth gaps today? Yes. Yes, that's the question, or you're saying yes, that is? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, would, we would say let's look at some counterpoints, and let's find out if the data we have supports that view. Yeah, this is going back to our correlation causation. We're looking for some piece of data that would make that uh, assumption almost entirely untenable. All right, so, so here's a counterpoint. If slavery was truly what drove the economic success of America, yeah. you would expect to see in the places that practiced slavery the South, greater economic success and benefit from that practice than you would in places that didn't practice slavery like the North. Right. But that's not what happened. Yeah, it's exactly the opposite. So yeah. the South, despite having tremendous natural resources and tons of free labor through chattel slavery to produce those resources, has been basically the poorest and most backward region of the country, to quote Thomas Sowell. Yeah. And so we, we don't see the connection between enslaving people and economic prosperity that uh, some of these authors suggest we should see. That's not to say that we don't think slavery and wealth are completely disconnected, but we just don't think that argument is up to snuff. That's right. Well, I would say that slavery uh, was sustained in the South because of economic greed. Yeah. It just also happened to be a very poor long-term economic program to build your states on. Yeah. It's, it, it might surprise some people, but capitalism would say that it's very counterintuitive, but it's true that to have forced free labor is actually a very unproductive way to acquire more capital. That's right. There's a very good counterexample uh, in, in the same vein here with Singapore. Mm -hmm. Have you been to Singapore? Never been. Okay. Uh, so Singapore was raided by Portugal in the 17th century. Yeah. It was colonized by Britain in the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, these are people who have basically been under the thumb of of European powers and yeah. enslaved by these European powers for centuries. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Singapore today is wealthier than both Portugal and Britain in terms of median wealth per adult. Okay. So this idea that slavery is, uh, is you, the, the wealth and economic success that you get from it is just, it's obvious. Yeah. It's not so obvious. Yeah. It's almost like the argument is almost that if you've ever been under slavery, you can never quite regain your economic footing. And we just know from various data points all across the world, from people who have gone through very similar things, that that's, that's not quite true. That's right. Okay. Now, the second point we need to make here is the timeline point. We made the similar point in our last episode. So again, if you haven't listened to that one or watched that one, go back and do so. But basically, it's this. If the wealth disparities that we see today are truly the result of historic injustices that came in the form of slavery and sure. Jim Crow in the past, then we should see those disparities shrinking the farther we get away from yeah. those laws and institutions. Uh, and yet we see virtually the opposite. Yeah. So all of the negative disparities that affect the black community today, particularly the economic disparities, that we're talking about, we're improving at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. What you see is kind of the bow tie effect. Disparity was massive, shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And then somewhere around 1970, in the 70s, it began to expand, expand, expand all over again. That's right. So we should be looking not at 
slavery and Jim Crow, but what happened in the middle there? Yeah. What happened in the 60s and 70s? And we've talked about this at length, but just give us another 30 seconds on it. Yeah, so, so basically what we see in the 1960s is a massive expansion of federal welfare programs uh, that intentionally disincentivized family formation. Yeah. We see the black community at large hitching their wagon to a very progressive Democratic Party that emphasized sexual autonomy. And this was the, the beginning of the sexual revolution. Uh, and, and just a complete and total unraveling of the nuclear family. Yeah. Uh, it has affected white families as well, but disproportionately sure. it has affected blacks. And we see everything in terms of uh, any measure of success you would want to measure uh, all of the disparities that we see between blacks and whites in our countries get phenomenally worse from that time point onward. Yeah. Real quick. This is in the notes, but I, I was having a conversation with a brother about this recently and uh, you know, he made a really good point. He said, have you read the book when helping hurts? I haven't, but you've recommended it. Yeah. It's about, you know, missionaries who go to the mission field and they desire to, you know, do good to the poor, right? Serve the poor, love them, help them and give them the gospel. And the whole argument of this book is basically missionaries go in there with a bunch of good intentions and they really do a lot of economic damage. You ship 30,000 t-shirts to, you know, some poor country in Africa thinking you're helping. Well, guess what? You just shut down the entire textile industry there. We can see that and go, that makes sense. But for whatever reason, when it comes to this, when we say, hey, listen, the government's attempt to help actually did the most damage to these people because race is involved, it makes us much harder to understand that. But it is what happened. Yeah. When, and when you have an economic incentive for your family unit to be destroyed, then of course the community that flows out of those families is going to be destroyed right along with it. That's right. It's a, it's a painful lesson in the reality of unintended consequences. Yeah. Uh, so back to what we were saying, though, sure. the economic uh, status of the black family before the 70s was was much improved. Yeah. Uh, between and 19- improving. So you have black families doing better, poverty going down, 1960s, 70s come, and now suddenly poverty is skyrocketing and you have all these issues in the black family. The common claim that this is the result of racism is also refuted by statistical data. Okay. So national surveys that have been conducted since the 1940s to the present have found incredible declines in racist and prejudicial attitudes among whites. Even more uh, current studies that have looked at implicit biases among whites have found that they're at record low levels. Yeah. And so if racist attitudes are becoming less and less common, if implicit bias is less and less common, and yet the wealth gap is growing and we're pointing fingers at it and saying racism It just, it doesn't make sense. The data doesn't match the narrative. Yeah. You would expect them to trend together, that the correlation would be very strong, not (laughs) moving in completely opposite directions. Okay. Counterpoint number three, let me state it and then you take it. Go. Wealth by transfer has decreased significantly during the last few decades. So, you know, dad dies, leaves you a certain amount of money, right? You would expect that as the community gets better, that that sort of thing would happen more often. Yeah, and and this understanding of the way wealth is acquired uh, is very narrow. Uh, It's not particularly realistic. And it sort of assumes that the vast majority of wealthy white people are only wealthy uh, because they got a bunch of slave money from their great-great-great-grandparents, which was stolen from black families. Sure. Uh, and that's just not the way wealth works. Mm. So this this is 
really, I think this reflects a Marxist understanding of society and what Marx called conflict theory. Limited pot of resources. Yeah. We're all going to fight to get what There's we can. There's this little pie and kind of like the Hungry Hungry Hippos game. Yeah. If, if I can get more of it than you and just keep it like yeah. a fixed finite resource and give it to my grandkids, yeah. you'll never get it. Right. Uh, and if I have it, that means you don't have it. Yeah. Uh, that's not the way wealth works. You can actually- In a communist society, it may be. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, in a free market, which we've been since America was founded, yeah. uh, relatively free economically, uh, wealth can be created. Mm -hmm. You can make the pie bigger. Yeah. So first off, I'd, I think there's some economic misunderstandings behind this objection. But all that aside, uh, wealth transfer, the idea that I get rich because my grandparents give me money, has actually decreased significantly in the last few decades while the wealth gap has expanded. So fewer households receive a transfer of wealth today than they did 30 years ago from, from grandparents and great-grandparents. And that wealth is significantly less in value. Some of that's due to inflation. Sure. Uh, but if it was true that the legacy of slavery was the cause of all this disparity, once again, uh, we should see it decreasing. Instead, we see the opposite. Okay. Next um, one. Yeah, counterpoint. N yeah. The theory of historical racism can't explain wealth disparities between groups of the same race. This is, I think, probably one of the most interesting counter arguments. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, a good example of this is a 2015 survey of wealth in Boston, which found that the median black household had only $8 of wealth. Mm. Newsweek reported this fact under the heading racism in Boston. Big surprise. Yeah. Uh, but the $8 figure only pertained to black Bostonians of American ancestry. What about the Caribbeans? The Caribbean. Like Pirates of the Caribbean? Yes. Black so, Bostonians of Caribbean ancestry. Yeah. So if you look at black Bostonians of Caribbe Caribbean ancestry. Oh, did I say it? <laughs> I think it's like. I think we should keep that in I think there. it's like Augustine, Augustine. You sure. Just, you just we just pick just go one with and it. go okay, with it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so black Bostonians of Caribbean ancestry had $12,000 of wealth on average. Yeah. And so despite having identical rates of college graduation. Yeah. Uh, only, you know, slightly higher incomes from sure. the jobs that they worked and having the same skin color yeah. in the same city, there's an enormous wealth gap. Can I just explain to our viewers and listeners why this is so important? Please do. People who are in the same city, who have the same skin color, but different cultures, different values, have different outcomes. You, this is, I think this is the heart of the argument that we're trying to make encapsulated in this tiny little study. Yeah. Uh, so one counter argument you might get to this is, well, look at black Americans. Black Americans in Boston have lived through traumatic experiences from slavery to Jim Crow mm -hmm. for, for decades. They have this trauma in their past that's affected their ability to earn an income yeah. and accrue wealth uh, that immigrants from the, the Caribbean don't have. Except that they were oppressed. They were enslaved. And uh, yeah. Yeah, you got me there. Uh, the slave trade was uh, enormous in the Caribbean islands. Yeah. So every family that was an immigrant from the Caribbean to Boston had similar experiences in their family tree. Yeah. So last counterpoint I want to throw in there. Uh, I'm, I'm citing a book here, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. This is by Thaddeus Williams. Highly recommended. Excellent book on this subject. I wish we'd found it sooner. Sure. Uh, he says, you know, according to 2018 data from the Census Bureau, whites rank 16th on the scale of median household income by selected ancestry groups. So basically, whites in terms of household income, fall behind Indians, Taiwanese, Lebanese, Turkish, Chinese, Iranian, Japanese, Pakistani, Filipino, Indonesian, Syrian, Korean, Ghanaian, Nigerian, and Guyanese. 
That's, so, a, that's a lot of different minorities. And they are all outperforming in terms of household income, white families. What, why? I mean, there's definitely a lot of uh, dark skin there. Yeah. So again, if this is all just white supremacy mm-hmm. and that explains the wealth gap between blacks and whites, it's a very ineffective white supremacy. Yeah. Uh, and I think there are better explanations. Sure. So let's get into those explanations. Yeah, that's right. Um, first one. Money habits. Yeah. So according to the state of working America, black people spend 4% more money annually than any other race, despite the fact that they are the least represented race and the race that lives in poverty at the highest rate. Break that down for us, Russell. So collectively, on average, uh, blacks in America have the highest poverty rates Mm -hmm. and they're spending way more money than everyone else. Which would you would expect that they'd be saving more money, but they're actually well, you spending hope. more. Yeah. So, yeah. so this is a behavioral pattern that e- economists can track. Yeah. And okay. what happens when you have very little money and you spend a lot of it? You become poor. Exactly. Or you perpetuate your own poverty. Yeah. Um. And and you've experienced this. Remember when you joined the army? And I wasted all of the money that Uncle <laughs> Sam gave me because I didn't know any better because I wasn't taught how to handle money. Yeah, right. I remember were that. You, were you one of those uh, new recruits who went out and got the 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 brand new Ford three fifty? With the 24% interest? I got an 18% interest, thank you very much. <laughs> and I may have spent several thousand dollars was on a, a stereo hum- system. It wasn't a Hummer? It was not a Hummer. Okay, so let's give okay. some examples of these types of spending patterns that economists have tracked. Yeah, so Nielsen, one of the world's largest marketing and research firms, uh, they keep extensive data on American consumer behavior and they, they break it down demographically. And one report found that compared to white women, Black women were 14% more likely to own a luxury vehicle, uh, 16% more likely to purchase costume jewelry, and 9% more likely to purchase fine jewelry. Now, that's not all. A similar Nielsen report from 2013 found that while only 62% of all white Americans owned a smartphone, 71% of blacks owned a smartphone. Moreover, (laughs) all of these spending differences were unconditional on wealth and income. And that's the key. It is. And that that shows us that this is a cultural habit uh, and one that is probably not wise given the income state of the families that we're talking about here. Sure. Yeah. Uh, another example, according to Target Market, a company that tracks uh, black consumer spending, uh, blacks spend a significant amount of their income on depreciable products. What's depreciable mean? Yeah, you know, you buy a new car for $20,000, you drive off the lot, it's immediately worth $17,000. Yeah, it drops in value. iPhones don't grow in value, they only drop. Right. Uh, clothing, those sorts of things. So when you, when you look at black families not really being able to pass on wealth, it, it might have more to do with the fact that they're not spending their money on things that can actually accrue wealth. That's right. right? Okay. Uh, another example? Uh, yeah, blacks make up only 12% of the U.S. population, yet they account for 30% of the country's scotch consumption. Mm, good De- choice. De- are you a fan of scotch? <laughs> I'm not. Detroit, 80% black, is the world's number one market for cognac, past the Carvassier. Detroit is also the number one crime city in America. So what, These are all the things we've been talking about rolled up into one city. Yeah. Let's just go to Detroit and do our yeah. podcast there. Yeah. Get on could. the ground. Okay. But, but this is a very important point, which is that this is a, a there's no one simple explanation for the disparities that we're seeing. Yeah. It is a net or a web of cultural problems and cultural influences yeah. that all connect. According to published reports uh, from Ariel Mutual Funds and Charles Schwab, uh, Schwab <laughs> in 2003, it said that 
when comparing households where black and whites, now listen, this is the important part, comparing black and whites who had roughly the same household income. I make 50,000, you make 48,000. Whites saved nearly 20% more each month for retirement. Okay, so Russell, any one of these is not a very significant argument, yeah. right? But when you wrap all these examples up, you can see that the money habits of black Americans in general do not lend themselves to wealth attainment, wealth accrual, wealth, uh, help me with more adjectives yeah, or verbs. Uh, passing on your yeah. wealth to your children. Yeah, that's right. Wealth inheritance. Yeah. yeah so this is, this is one of those difficult areas where, you know, it, it would be nice if we could say everyone spends money with equal wisdom. Everyone is equally careful and everyone is equally, uh, shows good stewardship with their yeah. resources. We know that's not true, yeah. but it also happens that, that there's a tendency among racial groups, not just individuals, but actual groups of people to spend their money differently. And now if that's not just true of blacks and whites. Yeah. I was going to say, but even oh. before you say, well, are you just saying that black people don't know how to save money? Sure. Well, look at the example we gave of black Caribbeans not yeah. long ago. Uh, they were doing just fine saving their money. That's right. So what we have here is a is a an arrow pointing us. You know, all of the evidence is yeah. driving us towards cultural factors deeper than race that have led to this wealth gap and have sustained the wealth gap and increased the wealth gap as yeah. the black family has deteriorated. There's a reason why Jewish Americans and Asian Americans tend to have more money than white Americans, and it's the same reason why black Americans tend to have less money than white Americans. Yeah. And, and what you're going to find, let's go back to the false dilemma that we talked about in our last episode, which okay. is the most common response to things like this, which is that you guys are racist. Right. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi echoes this false dilemma in his book. And he says, when you truly believe that racial groups are equal, then you also believe that racial disparities must be the result of racial discrimination. Yeah. So if you think black people and white people are equal, there's no way that we can have unequal outcomes in, in economic categories. Well, that's just actually, we would just say, no, I, I can believe that. Of course, black people and white people and throw in any other race, we are all equal in the sight of God. We are created in his image and likeness. We have inherent value, dignity, and worth. And we deserve equal protection under the law. That's right. But, but that does not mean that our cultural values are all equal. That's right. So the friends that I had growing up in East Tennessee yeah. uh, who had trailers and yeah. kids out of wedlock and usually shipped their kids off to be raised by a grandmother because one of the parents in the home was in rehab right. and spent way too much of their money on foolish things yeah. when they had it. Yeah. Uh, those are cultural values that I, by God's grace, don't share. Yeah. Uh, and I would say that that culture, despite us having the same skin color, that's a negative cultural value, and it has led to a lot of poverty in that area. Yeah. We could say the same thing about uh, black Americans in cities like Boston sure. or Detroit that we've talked about. Now, can I just share with you something I'm super encouraged by? Uh, I have a ton of black friends, which is what a, the racist says, That's right. but it's really true. And God, I just got to tell you guys, I'm so encouraged to see so many brothers and sisters out there pushing to change the narrative, to change the money spending habits, to, you know, get this wisdom out to the black community so that they can really make a, a positive change. Can I, can I just add too that most of the examples on spending habits of black Americans that I pulled for this yeah. show yeah. came from black bloggers. Oh yeah. It came yeah. from, from men and women who are looking around at their peers and yeah. saying, what is wrong with you people? Yeah. Uh, we've got to get it together. Yeah. And so 
I think the reason for that and the reason so few other people touch that is because it's so easy to say the things we're saying and immediately be labeled as a white racist. Yeah. For stating simple facts. We're actually just echoing things that other black guys are saying. That's black exactly Black men right. and women. Okay. So we would say, again, that being a cultural issue, uh, this is... This is one of the many factors that fit into this web of pathology that's affecting American families, yeah. and in particular affecting black American families. Right. Uh, and it stems back to misguided welfare policies, the, the epidemic levels of fatherlessness in the black family, yeah. uh, so on and so forth. We've covered this ad nauseum. Yeah. Um, but we think that fatherlessness in particular has a role to play in the way people grow up to think about spending. Oh, absolutely. Children raised in fatherless homes are less likely to express what we would call delayed gratification, mm -hmm. which means... Yeah, I mean, uh, I I won't eat that cookie now so that I will <laughs> feel good tomorrow, right? right? I'll save this money now so that I have more security in the future. And, and I know this intuitively because I'm having to try and teach this to my kids yeah. every time they have a dollar in their pocket. Exactly. Because they it's just burning a hole. And I'm trying to teach them, hey, look, you know how you want a new bike? Yeah. I know that candy looks good right now, yeah. but in an hour when you feel bad and the candy's gone, you'll wish that you'd had that dollar to go towards the bike fund. Oh, absolutely. And if I wasn't there yeah. to teach them that, uh, I mean, of course their mother would try and teach them. But, but let's not pretend like men and women are equal in their parenting roles. This is very much, I think, this just is a dad common thing. sense. This is a dad thing. We're like, suck it up, deal with it. Your emotional pain doesn't bother me because I can see the bigger picture. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the ways we know this is that Families, black families that are that are married, yeah. and have stable marital relationships, are basically inoculated to this poverty st statistic. Oh yeah, it's like uh, a magic pill you can take to not end up poor. If you get married, if you wait to have a baby until you get married, and if you have a high school diploma, it's like you get the vaccination against poverty. That's right. Uh, data from the Census Bureau shows that, uh, and this was that the, the Department of Health and Human Services. It shows that the gulf in income between married coupled households and fatherless families is enormous. Uh, in 2013, for example, the poverty rate among children in female-headed families yeah. with no spouse present was 45.8%, more than four times that of children in married couple families, 9.5%. Wow. And that's that's irrespective of skin color. Yeah, there, there's more data here. According to data analyzed by the Massachusetts Family Institute, we're going back to Massachusetts. We're just heavy on them today. In 2013, married couple families in Massachusetts had a median annual income of more than 114000 almost 75% higher than the 26000 median annual income for Massachusetts female-headed households with children. So what, what's the point of that? Yeah, so so again, we see consistent data. I mean, it's it, you can't even argue this anymore. Yeah, that children raised in a single parent family are going to financially do very poorly. Yeah, that family will po probably be in poverty. Yeah, and we know that poverty tends to produce poverty. So these are children growing up in environments where they're not taught delayed gratification. They see parents spending money on on unwise things yeah. and grow up to do the same thing themselves. And so these are all part of the cultural pathology, this network of factors that has led to the increase in the wealth gap uh, decades after the end of structural racist policies like Jim Crow. Yeah. And despite racism being at an all-time low, it's a you, better explanation. I think it's a much better explanation. Uh, you have a very interesting thought experiment here in our notes. Why don't you run us through this? Yeah, so this is sort of where I go in my mind when I hear the critique like, okay, I hear what you're saying, I see all the facts, yet you're still a racist because okay. you're still saying that there's something intrinsic about being black 
that's making black people have poverty, have broken families, have poor spending habits. Even though we've specifically said it. Even though we've said it ad nauseum that this is not what we're saying. Um, So just imagine we flip the script of history. Okay. Let's imagine you take a vulnerable white population, bring them on boats into a country that's controlled by black people. Yeah. Uh, enslave them for a few hundred years, then release them, but keep them under strict laws that restrict their freedom and treat them like second-class citizens at best. And then free them from those things and introduce the same misguided welfare policies and programs to the white population that we did in the 1960s and 70s to our black population that disincentivize nuclear family formation and marriage, that incentivize and sort of encourage uh, this sexual revolution ideology, mm-hmm. the, the, the feminism of the 1970s. Watch what happens. If, if we could go just flip the script and, and create a little you know, parallel universe, yeah. you would see- Bizarro world. You would see the same types of disparities among white people. You'd see them filling prisons. You would see them committing higher levels of violent crime, getting shot by police, uh, more than they should be based on their demographic. You would see them uh, with enormous wealth gaps. So in in the end, skin color is just a correlate. Yeah, It's just a the reason that we see skin color, these disparities line up with skin color is because our policies and programs and political activism has all been aimed at skin color. Mm. And so it's created disparities along those lines. Yeah. Well, here's a possible, another possible CRT response. How can you discount the experience of African-Americans, the vast majority of which believe racism is a major cause of disparity in our country? So isn't it, Russell, the height of hubris for you and Sean and uh, even other blacks to sit there and say that this isn't a problem when there are millions of people saying it is a problem? Listen to me. Yeah, this this is a response that you will encounter in talking to critical race theorists uh, sort of is like the the stopgap. It's like the last, it's the last thing that they're going to throw out before the conversation's over. Yeah. I Uh, I recently saw a pastor share something where he said, women have been trying to tell you for a long time now that the patriarchy is a problem. Will you listen? Uh, Minorities have been trying to tell you that white supremacy is a problem. Will you listen? That, that tweet just encapsulates what we're saying right now. Well, it's, it's linked closely to standpoint epistemology. Uh, That again, that again, I'm not going to rehash it here because we have a whole episode on it. Go back and find it. Yeah. Uh, But basically the idea here is that oppressed people, and I'm using air quotes for a reason because you don't have to prove that you're oppressed. You just have to claim it. Right. Uh, Oppressed people have an epistemic advantage. Meaning they can know things. They can know things you can't know, or even if you can know it, they know it first, they know it better, they see it more clearly. Yeah. And so if as a white person I claim something about their situation that disagrees with them. So let's say, for example, I'm disagreeing with the fact that they're oppressed. Well, their system of knowledge, the way they view reality, the way they understand the world says that by definition, I'm wrong and they're right because they've identified as the oppressed class. Yeah. When in reality, we know that our experiences can actually lead to as much delusion as they can. That's exactly right. So while there's a little bit of truth that sort of you can see in standpoint epistemology, if you stand back and squint your eyes. It it makes a lot of sense if you don't stop and think about it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Our experiences give us knowledge of situations more so than somebody who hasn't experienced something. Well, that's not really what standpoint epistemology is doing. What standpoint epistemology is doing is it's creating sort of a fence around the truth and it's saying, oh, you're white, you're on that side. Mm -hmm. I'm black, I'm on this side. 
by default, my interpretation of reality should be trusted and yours should be rejected where we disagree. We said we weren't going to do it, but we did it anyways. We did it. Now, there's one more response to this that I feel like we should bring up. Really, Thaddeus Williams does a good job talking about this in his book, but he talks about reverse cognitive behavioral therapy. It's, it's a really interesting point that he makes. Can, can you just elaborate on that a little? Yeah, but so cognitive therapy is a way to help people get over intense fears. Yeah. Uh, so you might slowly introduce somebody to a little bit of the thing they're afraid of mm -hmm. and then a little more and a little more until eventually it doesn't bother them anymore. You're decreasing their sensitivity. That's right. The other side of this, the reversal, is the sort of thing we see with critical race theory where our culture and our media presents racism as this enormous threat that's behind yeah. every bush, behind every tree and every shadow. And as we say that over and over again, we're sensitizing people mm -hmm. to look for it everywhere and because all it takes is a little clever thinking to yeah. see it in everything. Yeah, that's right. And so it's no surprise at all that there's an enormous amount of black Americans and white Americans who do think that racism is the explanation behind all of these disparities. If I tell you that racism is everywhere and you're black and somebody, you have an encounter with a white person one day that doesn't go as smoothly as you think it should, it'll be real easy to assume that racism is the cause. I think we can demonstrate this with data as well. Okay. Uh, so a 2001 Gallup poll, 2001. Yeah. I, I, if our listeners have begun to phase out at this point, if our viewers have like been doing something else on the internet, I really want them yeah, to like pay attention. pay attention to this. This is a, a hugely important piece of data that I've not heard anyone else talk okay. about. A 2001 Gallup poll found that 70% of blacks said that race relations between whites and blacks were very good or somewhat good. 70%. In 2020. So 19 years later. 19 years later. 19 years of decreasing racial animus, yes. less implicit bias, less racism. Yes. 2020, that number had plummeted to 36% of black Americans who would say that race relations between whites and blacks was very good or somewhat good. That is in incredible. So here we see, again, for, for no obvious reason, the perception that racism is an enormous problem is an enormous perception after, what was it, two decades? Yeah. That's all it took. Yeah. And so here we see, you know, a Pew survey 2020 found that 44% of Americans now say that it is a lot more difficult to be a black person in the U.S. than it is to be a white person. Mm. While 32% say it is a little more difficult and 23% say it's, it's no more difficult at all. The share saying it is a lot more difficult to be black than white is now nine percentage points higher than it was in the summer of 2016. Okay. Help my brain. You just did a lot of statistics. That's okay. So what are we talking about here? Six years? Yeah. In six years, we've seen a jump, nine point percentage jump in people who say it's really hard to be black in America. Wow. Did anything between 2016 and 2000, what is it, 21? Yeah. I don't even know what year we're in. Yeah. Did anything change so dramatically that 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 could be accounted for? Well, I think some people would say just cell phone footage, body cam footage, exactly. police officers being exposed. And How would you respond to that? I say this is exactly the thing that we just mentioned, this reverse cognitive therapy. The idea that racism is a bigger problem than it's ever been is huge in our minds. Mm -hmm. The data shows that everyone thinks this now. 20 yeah. years ago, we really didn't. Right. Has racism actually changed much? Well, the data says no. Actually, people are less racist and have less bias, but we are so focused on it and have become so sensitized to look for it everywhere that we believe a thing about reality that's actually not true. So how have we been, how have we been conditioned to this way? I mean, how... how who has trained our minds to think like this? Uh, let me get out my tinfoil hat. Right. Uh, 
it's it's not a conspiracy theory to say that the media and social media and the way that we absorb information has trained us to think this way. So all of the major cultural platforms. Yes. So so look at Facebook, for example, social biggest social media platform out there. They actually deleted a post by Candace Owens, a conservative commentator for African American. Yeah, about black woman for posting a, something that basically demonstrated a connection between. Uh, leftist liberal welfare policies yeah. and fatherless homes in the black community. So the same stuff that we're talking about on this show, Facebook deleted it. Yeah. Uh, which, if we were more popular, they'd probably delete our episode too. Thank God no one cares what we have That's to right. Say. But but the point is, is that we've been culturally conditioned to see a thing everywhere that is, we would argue, not really there. Yeah. And that's creating enormous division and disunity over nothing. Uh, and now the other thing that I would say here too, uh, you know, the, the idea that we're questioning black voices. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's entirely true. Okay. Uh, Thaddeus Williams in the book we keep referencing makes an excellent point that the vast majority of the academics and thinkers behind the critical race theory movement have been yeah. white feminist women. That's true. So uh, let's just go down the list here. Uh, three basic terms, whiteness, yeah. white privilege, and white fragility. Guess what? They were all popularized and crafted by white liberal women. Yeah. So Judith Katz, Peggy McIntosh, uh, Robin D'Angelo. Uh, the idea that racism is not the hatred of another person because of their skin color, yeah. but is this thing, uh, prejudice plus, plus power, power, this yeah. redefinition of racism for uh, the critical race theory lens. Uh, that was produced by a white liberal sociologist named Patricia Bidol Padva. Yeah. So th- th- that critique, it almost sounds to me, like when people talk about Christianity as the white man's religion, it's like, you don't understand where Christianity came from or where it was developed and who the early church fathers were Uh, in the same way. Yeah. We're not pushing back against black voices, but really we're not trying to push back against any particular ethnic voice, white voice, black voice, Indian voice. I don't care. We just want to promote what we think is true because we think that the voice that is winning the day at this moment that is speaking the loudest is doing tremendous damage to our country, but most importantly, to the church. Yeah, and and to the country, let's look at the example of shootings. Okay. So what happens when the vast majority of people in our country think that it's open season on black men and they're being shot left and right by police? Yeah, I mean, a bunch of bad things are going to happen. There's going to probably be more... Uh, bad police encounters between African-Americans and police officers because there's higher levels of anxiety and tension. Uh, There's going to be less trust of police officers. Uh, Well, then look at the defunding of the police. So you have cities like Minneapolis and Portland who have defunded their police based on this narrative. And and what did we see immediately afterward? Higher crime rates. Incredible jumps in the rate of violent crime. So the people that you are ostensibly trying to protect from this you know, a police vendetta against blacks, yeah. you're actually causing them more harm by removing law and order from the cities that they live in. And many of these same cities, uh, it's not very publicized, but are trying to turn those policies around and give funding back where it should that's go. Right. Uh, and that's just one of many examples of the types of fruit that CRT has produced. Uh, and we care about these issues enough to want to address them with truth yeah. so that we don't make the fire burn hotter and brighter uh, we actually put it out. Yeah, we we actually want to put the fire out, but in order to do that, we have to understand where it's coming from. Yeah, and that means acknowledging that racism is real, that uh, sure. racial prejudice is real, uh, acknowledging that uh, history has shown decades and centuries of of evil and wicked things done to minorities in our country, in our country yeah. and around the world. 
but also being really honest about facts in the present yeah, uh, and not becoming emotionally attached to any sort of cause that may make us feel really good and involved in something and like we're participating in justice being done, but in reality is actually making the problem worse. Yeah. Uh, before closing, if you've made it to the end of this very long episode. Good for you. Uh, good for you, first of all. Second of all, would you pray for us? Um, Russell, would you say that it's, would it be fair to say that since we've started down this critical theory trail that we've experienced more spiritual warfare? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, and, and more uh, accusations of being a white supremacist. Uh, I think that's part of it, I mean, right? we literally have people emailing uh, the production company that has worked with us, yeah. telling them to drop us for being evil white supremacists. Yeah. Um, book burning, the modern version of book burning. That's right. And, uh, you know, guys, believe it or not, Russell and I don't love drama. We are not seeking conflict. We don't want people to hate us and think that we're racist. We don't enjoy this. We want to do what scripture tells us and try to live a peaceful, quiet lives, working with our hands, loving our families, serving our churches. Nevertheless, we feel like men who have been called to defend and confirm the gospel, that we must address these things in this particular cultural moment. That's right. So please pray for us and thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed to us on YouTube, please do so. Uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram. You can catch our podcast if you like audio only on uh, iTunes, on Spotify, and uh, Alexa, Amazon. We'll yeah, play everywhere where well. super awesome podcasts can be found. That's right. Yeah. So thank you for all our listeners and particularly our international listeners. Yeah. We have a lot of fans in uh, New Zealand and Iceland <laughs> and. Scandinavia. You know how I know this? Because they're white? No, because oh. there's, uh, well, at, well, partly that. Okay. Uh, I know because if you look at the stats for our podcast, yeah. we're like number 200 in New Zealand. Hey, yeah. we're on our way, man. We're five, Watch out, Ro Jogan. 5,000 in the US, but. I said Ro Jogan. Nobody laughed. It's okay. Signing off. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. Goodbye.